go to our Bible study in Psalm 64. All right, so Psalm 64, and we will begin with our summary statement. Psalm 64 seeks deliverance from fear while anticipating God's intervention and righteous rejoicing. We'll go over that again. Psalm 64 seeks deliverance from fear while anticipating God's intervention and righteous rejoicing. A simple outline for the psalm in two parts, verses 1 to 6. Enemies bring fear. Verses 7 to 10. God brings rejoicing. Psalm 64, um, wait a minute, I need to go over that again, don't I? Verses 1 to 6, enemies bring fear. Verses 7 to 10, God brings rejoicing. All right, so we'll go to our observations. So Psalm 64 was written by David. Uh, The superscription ascribes it to him. Uh, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. So it is directed there to the chief musician. Of course, the word for psalm that is used is a word that indicates a poem set to musical accompaniment. Um, There's no other musical direction that is given. Uh, There's no occasion that's mentioned either in the heading or in the text of the psalm itself. Psalm 64 is what we would categorize as an individual lament. So it follows the conventions of a lament. It has begins with a direct address call to God and petition for help in verses 1 and 2, a crisis complaint in verses 3 to 6, confidence in God expressed through his anticipated um, judgment on his enemies in verses 7 to 8, and ends with praise in verses 9 to 10. The psalm also has some strong wisdom elements to it. Um, First of all, you have a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, obviously. Um, The wicked being the enemies, the adversaries in the psalm, um, and they're persecuting and oppressing the righteous, the faithful. And by the end of the psalm, there's a reversal of that. The um, wicked are destroyed and the righteous are made to rejoice. Um, Another strong wisdom element in this psalm is the power of words. And um, when you study through the book of Proverbs, you realize there's a lot in Proverbs about words and about our speech and words for good and for bad. And so the power of words, but particularly the power of words for destruction, are shown in this psalm. So you have, on the one hand, sword imagery, words compared to sharp and piercing Swords, and you can find the same in in Proverbs, for example, like Proverbs twelve, 
verse 18, Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 18, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 14. But you also have words um, that are depicted with arrows imagery in this psalm. And so arrows that are sharp and piercing, but also long-ranging. Um, arrows are um, that that are, are targeted. Um, they're very precise. So um, you can also find arrow imagery for the destructiveness of words in Proverbs, like in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 18, and chapter 26 and verse 18. Another strong wisdom element in this psalm is that of the poetic reversal, so the sort of the poetic justice. Um, so the devices of the enemies, which are described quite at length, given that this is not a very long psalm, and verses 3 to 6 give quite a bit of, of area in this psalm to the description of the devices of the enemies. And then we see on, in verses 7 and 8, those are turned back on them. Those devices are their undoing, their, their own destruction. Psalm 64 has connections with, obviously, the preceding psalms in this David psalm group, so beginning particularly in Psalm 52, um, forward through Psalm 63 here, um, having close connections with Psalm 61 through 63 especially. Um, and it also forms a transition. So like Psalm 61 to 64 are sort of like a little subgroup within the David group. And then Psalm 65 to 67 are another little, a little subgroup that are, that are closely connected by, by certain themes. And this Psalm 64 is really connected to both. It, it sort of transitions um, in this group as it unfolds. Now, when we're talking about the David group in, in general, um, we see um, themes such as life being in danger from enemies, um, enemies betraying with words, um, could be uh, lies, false witness, that sort of thing, spoken of very strongly in the previous psalm. Uh, also, the theme of future deliverance, that there's a there's sort of a, a waiting out of what is currently unfolding, looking toward this future deliverance. So future deliverance brings judgment on enemies. And we also see here uh, praise and benefits that extend broader than just David. So the psalm shows a very singular concern. In fact, uh, David uses the singular throughout this entire psalm until you get to verses 9 and 10. And then when you get to nine, verses 9 and 10, all of a sudden it, ex, it expands out with, with the plurals. And so there's a, um, a broader um, communal concern or effect, I guess you could say, or benefit. Um, another connection with Psalm 63 is actually a number of connections with Psalm 2. And Psalm 63 in some ways is Psalm 2 played out in the life of David. We'll talk about that more later. So there are a number of poetic features for Psalm 64, um, one of those being very strong imagery. So when you look at the images being used in the psalm, the most prominent images in the psalm, the psalm is using a, a hunting motif. Um, you have the swords and the, the arrows and the snares and the secrecy. Now, it could possibly be a military motif. Those things can be very closely associated. Um, but the psalm lacks any sort of suggestion of an army um, or any sort of suggestion of, of a large-scale 
sort of assault or attack. And so most likely I, I think the motif is, is that of, a, of using that hunting imagery. You have imagery that's used for words and for speech in the psalm. And the imagery used is imagery that is designed to highlight the dangerous and destructive nature or power of words. So you have tongue and sword in verses three, as well as arrows and words in verse three as well. You also have, um, poetically, you have contrasts that are set up throughout this psalm. And in fact, they're, they're um, poetic reversals, but they're also what, what we would have to call um, mirror reversals because they're, they're very precise. So for instance, you have the use of tongues in verse number three, and that's the tongues of the enemy. And they're being used like sharp swords. In fact, he says in verse three that they're sharpening their tongues like swords. And then you have a repetition of tongues in verse number eight. But in verse number eight, it is God that's making their own tongue to fall upon them. So in other words, you have the, the tongues in both places, but it is a reversal, but it's a precise reversal because what's being used by the enemies on the one is also being used in, by God in their undoing. You have arrows the same way in verses 3 and 7. You have references to fear um, that are very similar to that in verses 4 and 9. So in verse 4, the enemies, um, they, have, um, they have no fear. And in verse number 9, um, all those that see their destruction are made to fear. Um, you have the repetition of suddenness. And again, it's a precise reversal because the attacks of the enemy They've been plotted out. They've been secretly planned. They're carried out so that they're sudden or unexpected when they occur. And the judgment that comes from God, when he shoots them with his arrows, that comes suddenly upon them as well. And then you would have also sort of in the big picture of the psalm, you have dread, which is the fear of the psalmist, the fear of David in verse number one that is turned to rejoicing. Uh, which is which is mirrored there by the end in verse number ten. Now, common this is common to um, laments psalms in particular. The mood of the psalm moves obviously from negative to positive. So that mirror that you see, um, the reversal of the dread in verse one, that goes to the rejoicing in verse number ten. All right, so we want to walk through this psalm. We have um, ten verses, so I'll go ahead and read these. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity, who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the perfect. Suddenly do they shoot at him and fear not. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They commune of laying snares privily. They say, who shall see them? They search out iniquities. They accomplish a diligent search. Both the inward thought of every one of them and the heart is deep. God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded. So they shall make their own tongue to fall upon themselves. All that see them shall flee away. And all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. For they shall wisely consider of his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. 
So the psalm opens, verses 1 and 2, you have direct address appeal to God. Um, the reference to voice there in verse 1, the word actually refers to crying aloud, to making a sound. So it seems like these then would be um, even audible prayers, which would communicate to us the the true nature of distress that um, the psalmist is experiencing. Uh, we've seen similar in Psalm 55 and verse 17. Uh, he's asking to be heard. That's actually quite common in the Psalms, particularly with laments. And here in the David Psalms, especially uh, Psalm 54 and verse 2, Psalm 61 and verse 1 as well. His life, he speaks of his life with the indication that his life is in danger from the enemy. So uh, Psalm 54, 7, Psalm 55, verse 3, Psalm 56, verse 9, Psalm 59, verse 1, Psalm 61, verse 3. So again, this, is, this has been a, a theme going throughout these David Psalms, his life being in danger from the enemies. And he asks here to be preserved or to protected, as the word means. But you know, if you pay attention to the wording in verse 1, he doesn't ask to be protected from the enemies directly, but he asks to be protected from the fear or from the dread, uh, which is a different word for fear that's used here than the other two occurrences of fear um, in the psalm. He asks to be protected from the dread of his enemies, to be protected from the fear of them. In other words, he, he doesn't want to be overtaken or overwhelmed by fear of those who are plotting his undoing. Rather, he wants to be settled in his trust in God. In verse 2, we have the second petition that is made, and he wants to be hidden. And, and you'll notice the terms that are being used, and they, they give us sort of that um, refuge, um, the thematic idea of, of refuge, um, and, and ends with the, the word trust in verse 10, which, which means to take refuge. So he wants to be hidden from the workings of the wicked. He describes them in terms, the secret counsel of the wicked and the insurrection of the workers of iniquity. He describes them in terms that are conspiratorial and mob-like. Um, so the, the word for insurrection actually comes from the same root as the word for rage in Psalm 2 and verse number 1, talking about how that the, the, uh, the nation's rage against God. Now, so then we go to verses 3 to 6. In verses 3 to 6, we get the confidence and the conspiracy of the enemy. So we're given a picture of the enemy, and we're given a picture of the, the way that they work. In verse 3, we have tongues and words being depicted as swords and arrows. Tongues obviously also being another reference for words in a way of speaking of words, um, again, in sort of a, a poetic device. Now, swords, swords are sharp and they are destructive like the words of the wicked. Now, this has this actual this comparison has been made in Psalm 57 and verse 4, Psalm 59 and verse number 7. So swords are known for their cutting and for their piercing abilities. Obviously, the sharper that they are, the more deadly that they are. Swords are something that are used in close proximity um, could be uh, suggestive of, of the betrayal. Um, that also would be suggested by their use of words in a, in a sense of false witness against him. 
So here he says the enemy are wetting their swords or, or their tongues. Actually, he says that a word means that they're sharpening them. In other words, sharpening them is to make them more effective and more deadly, um, showing how that the enemy expend time and energy into the effort of maximizing their destructiveness. In other words, they're malevolent. Um, he speaks of arrows. Arrows are longer range weapons than swords are, um, but arrows also can uh, allow a, a, or I guess limit the ability to flee from them. They're, they're used also to depict words for evil in Psalm 57, 4. And again, some of the Proverbs that we mentioned at the beginning. And in verse 4, he speaks of the wicked and their their efforts to affect the downfall of their targets. And the targets are identified as the perfect in this verse, or as the word means upright. These are the ones that are um, the subject of their efforts and their plots. Now, secrecy is highlighted through, through several terms here. Um, and also with the suddenness of their shot. So, um, you know, if, uh, if, for instance, a sniper is hidden, then when he takes the shot, you know, then the chaos starts after that happens. No one is prepared for it. Um, no one is, is ready for it. It's sudden. It's unexpected. That's how he describes their shots. They've made all these plans and all these careful arrangements so that they can be secretly hidden so that they can have the, the element of surprise, you might say. So it's unexpected or least expected. And he tells us here that their efforts has resulted in them acting without fear. They fear not. In other words, they don't fear judgment or reprisal because they, they're confident that they will be successful. Um, we've seen similar uh, said of the enemies in Psalm 54 and verse number 3, Psalm 53 and verse 1, Psalm 55 and verse number 19. So in other words, David is here depicting their brazen arrogance, their overconfidence through pride. They've made all their secret counsels, they made all their secret plans, and they think that they will get away with it. Um, so in verse 5, uh, he speaks of how that the wicked are clinging to their evil purposes. In other words, it's it's almost as if he's saying that they take joy in their successful conspiracies. Like they they delight to pull this off. They they're plotting wicked. They're trying to do it in secret. They're trying to take their shot in secret. In other words, they're they're wanting to to pull off a complete um, downfall and get away with it. Um, they're confident in their success. They say. Who you know? Who will who will see? In other words, who will discover the snares that they have laid? So they think that they've been so thorough, so cunning, so clever that they are um, you know laying their snares. They're they're setting their traps, and no one is going to discover them. They're they're going their targets are going to be taken in them. And of course, this um, statement of theirs, "Who shall see them?" reminds us of earlier descriptions of those who working evil, believing that they will go unpunished. Uh, Psalm 59 and verse number 7, one example of that. So in verse 6, he describes them in a little more general terms, but he's, de he's depicting their deviousness. They are searching out the cruelest and the best methods of working their 
destruction. I mean, think about that for a moment, how that enemies are actually studying how to be and to do evil. And that, but that's exactly how he is depicting them here. It's, it's, almost, it's almost like they are seeking in every way to improve upon their evil so that they can be more devious and more cunning than what they've been before. Like it's a, like it's a, like it's a continual pursuit of those so minded. So he describes them using terms, the inward thought, or we might say the mind, but then he also uses heart, which, and they are two different terms. And oftentimes the use of heart refers to the mind, but, but really when we see these descriptions, the mind and the heart are obviously capturing the whole being. In other words, he's giving us a picture of the, the wicked being wholly devoted to working evil. They're wholly committed to it. It's, it's in a way, I guess you might say they're, they're sort of rotten to the core, um, and that would not be probably far off from what he's saying. And he's, but he describes them being heart and mind deep, deep. And that word obviously means hidden. It's beneath the surface. It's, it's deep. And Proverbs actually teaches that um, evil and, and folly is deep within man and that it takes wisdom in order to discern what is so hidden. So places like Proverbs 18.4 and Proverbs 20 and verse number 5. Then we get to verses seven and eight and the psalm turns and you even see that word, you know, but God shall shoot them. So we have this conjunction that shows the contrast. So this begins the mirror reversal um, showing the downfall of the wicked. Arrows, you notice in verse seven, are also the weapon of God's judgment. And so their long range speaks to the inability of his targets to be able to outrun him or to, to successfully hide or evade him. And so um, God's judgment being um, depicted through the, the use of arrows is Psalm 7 and verse 13, Psalm 18 and verse 14, and Psalm 45 and verse 5 in the Korahite group prior to the David group. God's shots, we are told, will come suddenly. So they are just as unexpected as the evildoers. But the fact that they come suddenly shows God's, God's response as a, um, in other words, it's decisive. So we get, we get an, another mirror image. So the, the enemies are shown sort of in this, they're playing this long game. They're this long drawn out plotting and scheming and, and planning and getting all of the pieces in place to affect this downfall. God's response then is shown as sudden. It is decisive. It is quick and it is final. In verse eight, their words come back on them, like in Psalm 59 and verse number 12. Um, the fleeing away that's mentioned here in verse eight, it is an odd term, but it likely points to their scattering. So earlier he used terms in verse two, for instance, that give us the idea of them forming secret companies. They're, they're conspiring together, um, having, having secret uh, meetings and, and companies of people. And these formed companies then are scattered and, and fleeing away um, at this judgment. In other words, 
their coalitions will be useless. Their their coalitions will be undone. And the wicked will find in that day when God um, finally rises to their judgment and to their destruction, that there is no strength in numbers. Then we get to verses 9 and 10, and and these verses are the uh, conclusion of the psalm, and they give us the resulting praise. Uh, The word for men in uh, verse 9 is Adam, uh, referring to all mankind, the descendants of Adam. So God's judgment on the wicked results in praise among all men. In other words, all of mankind, or uh, later we'll see nations that appears in uh, some of the following Psalms. So um, when we see verse 9, we can we can detect within this Psalm group that there is a progression. There's, there's an escalation of the praise of God. So God's praise that extends to all the earth. So like in Psalm 61 and verse 8, we get David saying singularly, I will praise God. In Psalm 63 and verse number 11, all who trust in God will praise him. Here in Psalm 64 and verse 9, all mankind or all types of men will praise God. As we go forward into Psalm 66 verses 1 and 4, God's praise is going to come from all the earth. And in Psalm 67 verses 3 to 7, in particular, all nations, all peoples of the earth. So we can see this this contributing to this progression of this praise extending um, from God's anointed king out to all of the ends of the earth. Now, the word for wise that is used here in verse 9, uh, men will fear, they'll declare the work of God, they're going to they're praise Him, they're going to reverence Him, and they're going to wisely consider His works. In other words, they're going to consider God's works with understanding. Uh, the word for wise is the same word that's used in Psalm 2 and verse number 10, and it's also a common word that's used in Proverbs. In Proverbs uses a cluster of words for wisdom and uses a cluster of different words for folly. Um, they're, they're not exact synonyms. They each sort of have their own um, nuance of meaning that they contribute to this whole picture of wisdom versus folly. And this is one of the words um, used for wisdom. Um, probably in, in, in our terms, it would, it would mean having good sense. Um, and, and maybe even something that, that we would say someone that was able to, to see and to, to discern um, some danger or some error and avoid it. Um, or it could also be said of someone who maybe had experienced that error, but they learned from it, and so they avoided it in the future. The idea of, of having good practical sense um, or wisdom. In verse 10, the righteous will be glad. The word means cheered up. And so we even we even get terminology that, that speaks of this reversal, of this mirroring effect. So they have been in dread of their enemies, and they're going to be cheered up because of God's judgments. Um, the word for righteous here is means just. Um, the word for upright means straight. And trust is the word that means to take refuge. It is the word used in Psalm 2 and verse number 12 and used in many psalms with covenantal associations. Uh, more recently, Psalm 57.1 in Psalm 61, 4, um, here it is, cu- trust is coupled with righteous and upright. 
So it's describing those in covenant relationship with God uh, and their the upright in heart will glory and that glory, um, that's not kavod, which we've seen a number of times. It is halal, uh, which means to praise. Upright in heart is also a mirror reversal. Uh, we had the deep heart of evil in the wicked that we saw previously. And here we have the, the rejoicing and the praising of the upright in heart. All right, so let's go to interpretation. Psalm 64 teaches the reality of evil in the world. So evil in the world is not impersonal. It's not random. I think sometimes even Christian people can have this idea that that evil is just some sort of random, you know, impersonal force of darkness in the world. And that is not the case. Um, Evil is not impersonal and it is not random. Evil is personal here in the sense that it is deep in the hearts of mankind. It is not random, it is calculating, and it is purposeful. And that's the description that we have in this psalm. Now, the righteous and the upright in heart are those who trust in God, but they're also the targets of evil evil opposition to God. So that is just a real picture of the world that we live in, this life under the sun and the vanity of this earth. Psalm 64 also teaches the reality of God's righteousness. He will not be patient with evil forever. He has suffered it, and he has his good and wise and holy and right reasons for doing so, but he will not suffer it forever. God's response, as shown in this psalm and is consistent with what we see like in the prophets and in some of the prophecies and such later that come in the New Testament, that God's response, when it comes, it will be sudden and it will be decisive. It will be unexpected because men's hearts are hardened and their eyes are blinded through pride. Saying that God's Um, judgment or his actions will be decisive or sudden rather means that they'll be decisive. Again, not a long drawn out campaign. And we could go further into that, I suppose, but um, his response will also be righteous. Um, The justice of his judgment is highlighted in this Psalm through the precise mirror reversals of the wicked being taken by their own devices. In other words, We're shown in in this psalm God acting in judgment and giving men uh, and women what they deserve, giving those working evil upon the earth what they deserve. They're, They're getting their own back again. The very things that they have been doing um, are their undoing. Well, it brings us to the messianic hope of Psalm 64. And the Messianic hope of Psalm 64 is best seen through the big picture of this psalm and seeing this psalm as a specimen of the raging and the rebellion against God that is described in Psalm number 2. So in this psalm, we have enemies opposing God and His anointed King in verses 1 to 6. 
This is also described in Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. We have then God responding, and God responding with a public, universal judgment. And that public judgment is also shown. It's another one of those mirror reversals. The enemies do all of their working in, in secret, thinking that they won't be seen. And God is, is bringing judgment very openly and making others to see and to fear. Well, we see that here in, in verses um, 7 and 8. And then we saw it in Psalm 2 in verses 4 to 9. God's response of judgment results rather in future salvation and praise for all nations who take refuge in Him. Here in verses 9 and 10, in Psalm 2, in verses 10 to 12. So obviously, this psalm then prefigures the suffering of David's son, the Messiah, the anointed son of Psalm 2, and particularly the destructive power of the tongue. So when we think about it, when we look at the sufferings and the crucifixion of Jesus, it was the words of evil that drove the nails into the hands of God's anointed. And yes, I know the soldiers uh, did this action and did that action, but what brought that about? What got that to that point? The, the Jews did not grab Jesus and haul him off and, and go nail him to a cross. No, they spent time accusing him. They spent time mocking him. Then he's turned over to the Romans, and the Romans are, are questioning and, and mocking and, and doing all of their work again. It's, it's the words that were brought to put those nails um, into his hands and to his feet. Uh, and if you think about that, you could read Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 28. All right, application. Uh, let's see. I have three of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 64 helps us understand the enemies. Enemies in this world are deep wells of evil that delight in destruction of all that is righteous. They have many weapons and many methods of attack. So we see in this psalm sudden and confident and clever and swords and arrows, all these, all these various things. But enemies are delighting, again, in evil. I remember having a um, conversation one time. I think we'd been playing basketball. And some guys I'd gone to school with, and we're sort of, you know, afterward just having some conversation. And I don't, I don't know how we got to talking about Satan. Uh, somehow we got to talking about Satan. And um, one of the guys said, said, I just don't understand that if Satan is going to be defeated, why does he even try? And it's a pretty good question. Of course, you know, growing up uh, in church and, and being taught the Bible from birth, um, you know, I've always taken it that Satan will be defeated. I never really thought about, well, why, why does he even try? But the the best thing that we can really say about that 
is just that that question shows we don't really understand the depths of evil. We don't really understand the depths of sinfulness that delights in the destruction of righteousness. Satan will, will never lay down his weapons of his own accord. He's not going to go do something else. He is set against God and against his anointed. And that is, that's been seen throughout history. Uh, it can be seen today. It will certainly be seen in the future. Number two, understanding Psalm 64 helps us understand where lines are drawn. In other words, notice that it's the descriptions here of enemies and wicked and evildoers, all these terms that are used for those that are going to receive God's judgment. All of, all of those are on the opposite side of God. They are opposing God. And that's also the side that is opposite of those who are righteous, upright in heart, and who trust in God. There are clear lines. So if you do not take refuge in God, there will be no shelter and no quarter from the swords and the arrows of his judgment. And you are on the side of his enemies. Number three, understanding Psalm 64 helps us understand that God does intervene. There's a lot of Psalms. Now, this one doesn't in particular, but there's a lot of Psalms that give that question, how long, how long? And, and we're going to come up on, on some of those um, pretty soon with giving the idea that this has seemed to go on for so long and why, you know, why are you waiting to take action? Um, but God does intervene and trusting him means committing ourselves to him, not revenging ourselves upon our enemies. Enemies are not also in God's intervention in this Psalm. Enemies are not the only ones with weapons. They do have weapons, and oftentimes it can seem to be overwhelming. They've got numbers on their side. They've got um, weapons, uh, and, and not only that, they, they, they don't fight fair. They're, they're not going to observe rules of civility. They're not going to observe um, ethics and, uh, or even abide by the Geneva Conventions or, or whatever. They don't fight fair. That is evil, and that can seem to be hopeless um, for us. But enemies are not the only ones with weapons. And not only that, their weapons are no match for God's weapons, and he will turn those weapons against them, and it will be their undoing. <laughs> 